the things I enjoy about the Christmas season is the music. We don't get to sing those songs all the rest of the year, so we jump on them in December, and we sing them a lot, and uh, I appreciate that and enjoy it uh, so much. Well, this evening, we are going to continue our series on the Christian life, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3 in just a moment, if you want to make your way over to that passage. I want us to think for a few minutes this evening about our responsibility after we're saved to serve. Now, last week, we began our series by identifying and talking through the fact that when we get saved, we become a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to live in us. But we really still have the ability to choose between walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. The less we are surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the more we will be under the dominion of the flesh. And converse is true. The more we pursue walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and surrender to God in prayer and in his word, the more we will be influenced, controlled, and directed by the Holy Spirit, which then produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Well, for the sake of discussion, we're serving and walking in the Spirit as we should be. What is our responsibility in serving God after we're saved and using what the Bible calls spiritual gifts? I would submit to you from the Bible this evening, and we're going to look at it, that it is our responsibility after we're saved to serve God. That doesn't mean you have to be in full-time vocational ministry. It doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or, or serve on staff at a church. But what it does mean is that when Jesus saved us and redeemed us, he redeemed all of us. Not just our soul, but our time, our bodies, everything that we are, everything that we have, everything that we're able to do, our talents, our, our treasures, our resources, it all belongs to him. He bought it. And he bought it with his blood. He redeemed us. And so we have a responsibility as children of God, as servants of the Lord, to serve him. Now here's how you do it, and here's how we do it. We don't serve God in the power of the flesh no more than we live in the power of the flesh. We serve God in the power of the Spirit. The moment you were saved, the moment I was saved, God, God the Holy Spirit, gave each of us at least one spiritual gift. Now, it has been my experience over the years in the ministry that most Christians have more than one spiritual gift. One might be dominant, but they're skilled and gifted at serving God in more than one area. To use our spiritual gift, to employ it, is a matter of stewardship. To have a spiritual gift from God is just that. It's a gift it is a thing God has entrusted to us, and we are responsible to him for how we use that gift and how we employ that gift and how we allow him to use us. Now, here's an interesting aspect of spiritual gifts, and we'll see it in just a moment. We don't get to pick which one we have. Would be kind of cool to go on the Bible and go, I want that one. That one, looks, that one looks like it would suit me just fine. That's not how it works. You see, when you got saved, God, the Holy Spirit, chose your gift and gave it to you. He issued it to you. 
Now you might think, I think I could do better if I pick one I like. No, if you engage the one he gave you, you'll like it. That's how it works, okay? God picked for us the gift he wants us to use. Now, why did he do that? I'll give you two reasons. Number one, your spiritual gift is not for you. It's not for you. My spiritual gift is not for me. So I don't get to pick the one I think I want because it isn't for me. Who is your spiritual gift for? It's for the edification of others in the body of Christ, for the glory of God. So God gave you and me our gifts to benefit one another in the body of believers for his glory, for our edification, which is growth, and for his glory. Do you begin to see how important it is that we each use our spiritual gift because we need one another? I need you to use your spiritual gift to bless me. We need to use our spiritual gifts for the edification of one another so that God is glorified. Now in that scenario, and Paul's going to talk about it right here, there's no place in that loop that you see in the Bible where God gives the gift, we employ it, we surrender to him, God the Holy Spirit enables us to use it, it edifies other believers in the body of Christ to God's glory. Nowhere in there is the letter I, or me, or exaltation for the person who's using the gift. No, none of that's in there, Okay. Paul's going to address that in this passage beginning in verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. This is his exhortation. Look at it with me. Paul said, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The measure of faith or the gift of faith that Paul's talking about here is the gift, the spiritual gift. And Paul begins this thought process, his, his exhortation about spiritual gifts by saying, through the grace given to me. What he's saying is, through the gift that God's given me, I'm giving you this instruction. What was Paul's gift? He was an apostle. God called him, saved him on the road to Damascus and appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Well, he happens to be writing to the church in Rome, predominantly Gentile. And he's saying, in my gift and the gift that God called me to serve in, I'm being faithful in the use of my gift to give you this exhortation. So Paul could say, in the same way that I embrace the gift that God gave to me, I want you to embrace the gift that God gave to you. Now, he gives some parameters to our spiritual gifts. And the first thing he talks about is what attitude should we have in the employment of our gift? What should be our, our demeanor, our outlook? And the first thing he said was, don't have a wrong attitude. To everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Phroneo is to think. Hupo means above. Hupo phroneo, he's saying, don't think higher than you ought to think of yourself. Don't get full of yourself about your spiritual gift. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't, don't, don't think that you're all that because God gave you a gift. Because see, here's the facts. God gives some people gifts that are more visible than others, more prominent than others, more, more, uh, more prone to draw public view. 
In our vernacular, Paul would say, don't let that go to your head. Don't, don't let that thing make you think more of yourself than you should be thinking. And really what he's warning about is unwarranted pride. If God is so gracious to us to use us to accomplish some element of the ministry, whatever that element is, we shouldn't be patting ourselves on the back. We shouldn't say, man, look at me go. That's a real danger. We'll talk about that in a minute. No, Paul said, don't, don't think more. You know why I think he wrote this to the church in Rome? This was a problem in Corinth. This is a problem in Corinth. The Corinthians had, had, had latched onto the more visible gifts. And they were bragging about it. And they were proud about it. And this is the warning that Paul gives. So the wrong attitude would be to uh, be proud or boastful in the use of the spiritual gift. Or even if you don't say it on the outside in the heart, you could be thinking, man, cooking now in the ministry, doing my thing. And, and that's pride. And we shouldn't do that. The right attitude, he says here, but think soberly, sophroneo. He said, think soberly. Uh, as God has dealt to each one a gift. What does it mean to think soberly? It means to think sensibly or think with understanding or, or realize that God is the one who gives the gift. And not only is God the one who gives the gift, God's the one who empowers the gift. How many times have you heard it said that what God calls us to do, he will equip us to do? Not a truer statement made. It is... God who, who gives the gift. It's God who empowers the gift. It's not from us. It's such, it's such a temptation for the flesh that if God allows us to be involved in something that's, that's successful, to think that they just can't survive without us. You remember Philip in the book of Acts? He's, he's down there in an evangelism explosion among the, um, among the Gentiles. And man, people are getting saved. And one day God comes to him and says, hey, I need you to leave and go out into the desert and meet a fellow. Now, most Christians might have been tempted to respond to God and say, Lord, you surely don't want me to leave right now. I mean, look at what's going on around here. I mean, man, we got people getting saved everywhere, and the, and the big guys from Jerusalem are coming down to see what's going on in here. Man, we got some gospel going on, and we got people getting saved, and the church is exploding, and we, we got baptisms every day. Lord, they need me here. God would say, no, they don't need you. They need you to do what I tell you. So what did Philip do? And I'm not saying Philip did that. I'm saying that's what might have been the temptation. But to Philip's credit, he leads goes out and meets the Ethiopian eunuch. In the middle of the desert, one guy. One guy. So Philip goes all the way to the desert to lead one guy to the Lord and baptize one fellow. But you know what happened in history? He goes back to where he come from with the gospel, and guess what happened? Went all over the place. Churches are born. You see, it isn't us that's the, that's the key cog here. It is the Holy Spirit and the gift, and doing what God told us to do. So, God, so Paul said, look, don't be high-minded, be sober-minded. Be, uh, be real about yourself and what, and what you're doing and who's doing it. No place for boasting. 
It's a call for humility and gratitude. Our attitude ought to be, God, I can't believe you give me the privilege to serve. And thank you for letting me serve. And God, I'm amazed at what you're doing. That's the attitude, okay? Not, not high-minded. Now, where's the danger in the church today? I knew you would ask, so I wrote down some things. <clears throat> and let me start with pastors. I'll pick on me first. I'll pick on us pastors first. Is it, is it a real danger that a pastor might become high-minded? Yes. Yes, it is. Is it possible that a pastor could serve in the ministry with a wrong attitude? Yes, it is. A pastor whom God uses to draw a large crowd, lots of people, would be particularly tempted to begin to be high-minded. I mean, popularity, you know, a little fame, a little, little recognition. Other pastors coming to him and saying, how do you do it? His answer ought to be, I don't do it. It ain't me at all. In fact, the truth is, I don't know what's going on. I just get up there and say what God said and people show up. That's the attitude. But there's the danger that the pastor might think, well, let me tell you my method. What method? Okay, what method? There isn't a man-made method in the world that can build the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's about the gospel. It's about his word. So there's a very real danger that a pastor could become well-known, hey, and turn his ministry into a business. Ever seen that before? I mean, you know, I'm so popular now, people know me on TV, man. Let me, let me, let me do some things. How about a pastor who becomes so influential that he's tempted to try to use his personal opinions to move people around. I've told this story before. I was in a meeting, and now that I'm, that I'm getting older, I'm not old yet, I'm just getting older. Depends on who I'm standing next to. <laughs> I was in a meeting one time with some pastors, and we were talking about ministry stuff, and there was a young, a young pastor in the meeting, highly educated young pastor, been through all the schools, man, smart. Guys, you could talk to him and tell that God had blessed him with great intellect and just a, a great knowledge of the Bible. And, but his attitude had a little bit of an edge of, I'm smarter than everybody else in the room. Ever meet somebody like that? Now, I'm telling you, as an old retired naval officer, that attitude irritates me right off, right, right from the get-go before we even start talking. That I'm smarter than you attitude makes me want to chop him off at the knees. But then the spiritual side of me says, we'll show grace, right? But you know what I believe that young man had fallen into? Because in the meeting, there was, an, there was a, a pastor who had been in the ministry for years, was older, older than me. Not as educated as that young man, clearly not, didn't, wasn't able to converse on the same level academically or about the Bible. And this young man took the opportunity to make him look bad in the meeting, you know, not, not directly at him, but obviously purposely talking above where he was at and what he could understand. 
And I'm, God knows my heart, so I'm not telling him anything God didn't know. I was so upset in that meeting that I was glad when it was over because I had to leave room because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be unpastorly to the young man who was there, okay? And what I'm saying is this, this thing, this, this, this thinking more of ourselves or higher than we should of ourselves is a very real danger for pastors. As I tell you the last one, the story is told of a young man who right out of seminary, did well, he came to, back to church and, and he was, he's getting his first Sunday to preach and man, he got up there so confident. He was just ready to roll. And if anybody stood up here and preached before, that's a recipe for disaster. You know that, okay? You get up there so confident, like you got this thing nailed, and a half hour later, you don't even remember what you said. And you come down out of the pulpit ashamed and embarrassed, and, and oh my goodness, that's the worst sermon. And, and a, a, a godly, elderly lady walked up to him and said, if you went up in the pulpit like you come down, you'd have come down like you went up. And I thought, man... That's true. Paul said, don't be high-minded, be uh, sober-minded. What about, what about another group in the church that could be in danger of this, of this high-mindedness? How about elders and deacons? Oh, pastor, you don't have to talk about that. Now, let me, could, it not, could not the same thing happen to elders and deacons? I've seen, I've seen elder boards think they run the church. That's not biblical, by the way. I've seen elder, in this association, in Black Creek Baptist Association, I've seen an elder board fire pastor. I don't think that's possible. I'm not sure that's supposed to be possible. But they basically take upon themselves the high-minded attitude that what we say goes without first, they should, how about let's check the Bible before you go doing that, okay? And let's just check it out. I have seen leadership in churches get a reputation of every pastor that comes doesn't meet their standard. In fact, they fire them, and after two or three pastors, they want to know why they can't get a pastor. Because any guy with a right mind ain't going there. That's why. Listen, high-minded attitude rather than a sober-minded attitude. How about some other places of service in the church? Let me just run down them real quick so we have time here. How about musicians, singers? How about those who give? How about those who give to the church? There's a great temptation for people who are wealthy to let it slip that they give a lot. Why? High-mindedness. Bible says don't let your left hand know what the right hand's doing, right? So there's this high-mindedness. How about, how about proud, of, proud of my attendance and involvement? Man I'm, man, I'm, man, I'm there every week. God put a star by my name. I'm always there, man. I'm, I'm doing all these things I think I'm supposed to do. High-mindedness. Paul said, let us think soberly as God has dealt each one of us a measure of faith. Every born-again child of God should never cease to be amazed that God would save us in the first place. And if you keep that attitude, my God, it is enough that you saved me if you don't do anything else for me. The fact that you let me do something that's just icing on the cake. That's the attitude we ought to have, okay? So Paul said, don't be high-minded, be sober-minded. Now, notice in this verse also, in verse 3 at the end, he says, as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. Our gifts come from God. And you can't say, we can't say, 
well, God didn't give me a gift, so I'm not doing anything. No, because the Bible says we all got one. In fact, the Bible says we all got a gift. We're all called, we're all equipped, and we should use that gift for the glory of God. We are responsible for using that gift. Let me tell you how to, listen, you know this. Let me just remind you how this works. When God saves us, he saves us as he created us. And here's what I mean by that. Lost, lost people have tremendous talents, right? Lost people have smart, talented, skilled, you know, they're just, God's blessed them when he created them with incredible talents. They're just not using them for him. Now, what happens when they get saved? We're supposed to take all that stuff God created us to be able to do and now use it for his glory. Spiritual gifts enhanced at a whole other level. And here's what I mean by that. Sherry's not here, so I'll use her as an illustration. I met Sherry when she was 13 or 14. Her dad was our youth pastor. She was playing the piano in church at 13, 14 years old. That's how she could play. I'll tell you this because she ain't here too. She'll, somebody, one of y'all will tell on me and she'll get me later. When Ronnie and Betty, there's my mother-in-law back there, when they came to the church to be our youth pastors, I was in the back row of the youth choir. I didn't know who they were, bunch of redneck boys out there. We were trouble, capital T. I was saved, but I was still trouble. And I saw all of them walk in, and I saw Sherry. And the guy sat next to me, I said, who is that? He goes, that's our new youth pastor, not him. I don't know who he is. The one, the one walking right behind him that's going to the piano. He goes, oh, that's his oldest daughter, Sherry. So I made it my business right after that to try to find out who Sherry was and get to know her. What I'm saying is she's been playing the piano ever since I've known her, ever since I met her. Now, I could take up the piano. I made it all the way up to Yellow Rose of Texas in my lessons. I could take up the piano, and I could practice eight hours a day every day, but I will never be as good as she is at playing the piano, you know, or Jeff or anybody who has, you know why? Because that's her gift. That's her passion. That's, that's the thing that God gave her to do, and I don't care how hard I work at it and how much I try and whatever I would do, I could never be as good as her. Not, listen, because that's not my gift. It's not my passion. So she does that because that's her gift. That's her passion. When God gives us our gifts, they're connected to our talents. You should find out what it is God's given you to do. And listen to me. When you do what God's given you to do, you will find joy in it. And you will find contentment in it. And it won't be an onerous thing. You say, well, isn't preaching and pastoring difficult? Oh, it's got its challenges. There's no doubt about that, I can tell you. But I told Sherry in the car today, we were riding home, we were talking about the message, and I, and I said, you know what, though? If I didn't have an outlet to teach God's word, I'd be miserable. I got to teach somewhere. I got to get up and teach the Bible somewhere. Why do I feel that way? Because it's what God called me to do. It's the thing he called me to do. So Paul said, use your gifts. Each one of us that you have your gift, use it. Now, 
he illustrates it with the human body. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individual, individually members of one another. He uses the human body. Now, the illustration is very clear. He says, look, the human body has a whole bunch of different parts. And they all are connected. Remember, the ankle bones connected to the shin bones, you know that song? Young people go, what song is that? Look it up. The whole body is connected. All the parts are connected. And what do they do? They all function together so that we function. Okay? Let me give you three things about the human body that's directly connected spiritually. Number one, our parts are mutually dependent. The lungs need the heart. The heart needs the lungs. Each one of them doing their thing independently without the other one means nothing. Right? I mean, the lungs can bring the air in, but if the heart don't pump the blood around after the lungs have put the oxygen in the, in the bloodstream, not going to help you much. So they're mutually dependent. The big toe needs your thumb as much as any of the rest of your body, right? I mean, all the parts are connected. They, they work together in the senses, the eyes, the seeing, the hearing, the smelling, the touching, all work together. They work together for balance, for walking, for the feet, for the legs, all the parts are connected and they work together. The brain works in concert with the hands. When you think, you do. You speak. Get this now. The parts of the body don't fight with one another. They don't envy one another. The heart's not jealous of the lungs. Say, oh man, I'd really like to be the lungs. Or the lungs are not going, man, I wish I was the heart. The big toe doesn't go, I wish I was a thumb. No, they don't fight with one another. They, they, they work together, not jealous of what each part of the body does. Now, some parts of the body are more visible and prominent than others, right? But the parts that you can see and that aren't prominent, they aren't mad. They aren't upset because God created the parts of your body to do what it do, and that part of your body is happy doing what it does. Just beginning to see the picture here? Each part of the body is content with its function. The heart's happy to pump blood all day long. It's happy to do it. The lungs are happy to do the oxygen thing. The kidneys and the liver is happy doing what it does. The eyes are happy doing what they do. The ears are happy doing what they do. Now look at verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Let me make the application spiritually. We are dependent on one another. We are mutually dependent. We need each other in the function of the body of Christ. There are no Lone Ranger Christians in the Bible. There aren't. I've had Christians say to me, I don't need to attend church, I'm saved. And I just flat out tell them, you're wrong. You're wrong. We are mutually dependent on one another. We need one another. We need to function together. Teachers blessing the word of God. Musicians blessing the praise and worship. Givers blessing the function of the church. Children workers blessing the children's ministry. Youth workers blessing the youth ministry. Those who take out the trash 
keep God's church clean and functioning. And if the dirty diapers stay back there more than one day, you know they're here. We all are dependent on one another, right? We function together. Number two, just as in the body, the parts don't envy and dispute with one another, neither should we. We shouldn't fight with one another over, over the ministry in the church and over what we do. We shouldn't argue with one another or be at odds with one another. You say, well, Pastor, it's a little more than the body. Some people irritate me. Well, I'm sure you irritate somebody else too, okay? I guarantee you when somebody irritates me, I can be irritating back. I know how to do that. But we shouldn't do that. We should be, we should be working together. And then... Be content. Someone might say, well, Pastor, I, I got a spiritual gift, but I wish I could do something else. No, you don't. No, you don't. Do the thing God's called you to do. Do the thing God's enabled you to do. Do the thing God's equipped you to do. My, my oldest daughter, Megan, some of you have seen her. She comes here and sings. That's her gift, by the way. Now, I could tell you a story sometime about the miracle of her life, but anyway. She has a gift with children. It, it is the, it, Sherry and I laugh about it. It defies logic. She's a teacher in a private school in California. She's a music teacher. And that classroom could be a classroom of the rowdiest, uncontrolled kids. And when she walks in and snaps her fingers and tells them to sit down, they look like little soldiers. I kid you not, I've seen her do it. What is that? I mean, I couldn't do that with a big stick. That's a gift. The kids listen to her. She relates to them. Use your gift. Whatever it is God gave you, be happy doing it. Be happy and content serving in that capacity. Now, what kind of spiritual gifts are there out there? I don't think there's a finite list, to tell you the truth. There's lists in the Bible, and Paul's going to list seven of them here, and we're going to look at them. But see, God, I believe it's greater than just saying, well, this person has a gift of teaching because you know what that gift of teaching is connected to? The person's personality and the, and the things God gave them to be able to do, their talents, God puts it together to make it what he wants it to be. No two people have the same fingerprint, do they? God created us all different. So a person's gift to teach, this person's gift to teach is going to be different from that person's gift of teaching. Oh, it'll accomplish the same thing. They just go about a different way because they're different people. Listen to this list. Look at verses 6 to 8. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. We all got different gifts. Let us use them. And then he begins to lift them. At prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let's go down through these for just a moment and think about them before we finish tonight. He said, if a person has the gift of prophecy, they should prophesy. Let me, let me help you with prophecy because we all know prophecy comes in two forms, foretelling and forthtelling. Get the difference? Foretelling and forthtelling. The Old Testament is full of prophets who foretold. God gave them a message, and they gave the message. We have it written down. You can go read it. In the New Testament, after Jesus died, the church was being born. There were some prophets. 
God was still speaking through people directly to say what was going to happen or to give instructions because they didn't have the written canon of Scripture yet. But the Bible's clear that as this book was finished and God said what he had to say, the foretelling part waned. And I say this with all sincerity and with all kindness. If somebody stands up today and says, I have a new word from God, they're lying. It's not true. God's not revealing more revelation today. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to you today. I'm not saying God doesn't move your heart or speak to you, but it will always be with regard to what he's already said. It won't be something new. I heard a guy a few years ago. I got to hurry. I heard a guy a few years ago got up on a Sunday morning. Somebody told me about it, and I went and looked up the sermon. I couldn't believe it. It was on a, I think it was the Easter. It was some special service. It was going to have a huge crowd, and he got up on a Sunday morning, and he said, God spoke to me last night, and I have a new message for you. And he began to pontificate on this new message. That's heresy. That's what that is. God didn't speak to him in the middle of the night. He ate pizza or something before he went to bed. That's his problem. He ain't getting no new message from God. You know why? Because everything God wants you and me to know about him, and what's going to happen is in this book right here. It's the closed canon of Scripture. So when the Bible says we have the gift of prophecy today, you know what it is? Forthtelling. If you share the gospel, you're a prophet. If you, tear, if you teach the Bible, you're a prophet. I, I, I've seen preacher friends of mine, well, acquaintances, and they go, Prophet so-and-so. Mm. I don't really think that's the appropriate title because the Bible says we're pastors, poimain, we are elders, bishops, okay? Those are the words in the New Testament. Not, not prophet. But in the sense, if he's preaching the gospel and he's preaching God's word, you call yourself a prophet if you want to. I would say it would be confusing to most people who would hear that. But if you want to be a prophet, that's fine. Prophet today means we tell people what God said. We repeat what God said. We share what God said. So in essence, we are all prophets of God in that sense and foretelling, and we are all ambassadors of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do, okay? So Paul's saying, man, if you're called, and that's your gift is, is talking to people and sharing what God said, he said, and get with it. And number two, he said, if you've been called to ministry, if your gift is ministry, Diaconia, same word we get deacon from. If, you're, if your gift is ministry, if you can minister to people, if you can meet practical needs in the body of Christ, uh, do it. Minister to people. Help them. Come alongside them. Encourage them. Be a, a servant in the body of Christ. Help one another. There are many ways to serve, by the way, in the church and minister to people, and you never stand behind the pulpit. There are a lot of ways to minister to people, pray with them, help them. And then probably my favorite one in the list is teaching, because I know that's the one God called me to do. Teaching is an interesting thing. The word means to instruct in, in both formal and informal settings. It means to instruct and speak uh, uh, teaching into people's lives so they can understand, particularly with regard to the word of God. It means to teach them God's word. It's the gift of explaining God's word so people can understand it. I don't say this unkindly, but it's a serious matter. I have, I have sat through sermons before, and Lord knows my motive for saying this. 
And when the guy gets done, I don't know what he said. Just be honest. Sit there for a half hour, and I don't know if there were two coherent thoughts connected in the whole thing. I could read the verse that he said. I could get more out of the verse reading it for myself than what he said. And I'm saying, I'm saying that to say this. I think the thing missing in the church today in the 21st century is teaching. That's my conviction. That's why we do what we do here. That's why I preach the way I preach. That's why I say, turn in your Bible to this verse, and we spend 15 minutes on a verse. Why? Because we're teaching, and we're learning, and we're learning together. That's missing in the church today. Let me tell you what we got in the church today. I don't want to get off on this too much, but here it is. There's a gift down here, exhortation, right after teaching. I'm going to save that, but you know what? Teaching is to the brain, which goes to the heart. Exhortation goes straight to the heart. Exhortation is, is an encouragement. It's exhorting people to move forward and do things. You can't exhort people to move forward and do things when they don't know what they're supposed to do. You can't exhort them to live right or serve God when you didn't tell them what the Bible says about serving God. You can't exhort them to be holy when they don't even know what the word means. So in my little bitty thinking, I think we've got to teach them and then exhort them. How about that? How about we teach and say, this is what the Word of God says, and this is what it means, and this is what it means to us. Now go out and do it. What do you think? I think that sounds like the right way. Okay? So we have this dearth of, of teaching in the church today. I'll tell you why I think so. <clears throat> In our, in our popular worldview today of wanting to be successful and famous, and too many pastors try to be cutting edge and come up with new stuff and be, be all the new thing. You know, get a name in the, in the, on the internet and get a web page and a YouTube channel or whatever. Okay. Get, a, get a thousand followers and be the, be the go-to person about how to do this and do that. Hmm, there's only one problem with that. That's not what God called us to do. Simple as that. Now, if God uses a man who's teaching the word, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, those guys who just, man, teach, and they become well-known, and God uses them as a sharp instrument, and God bless them. But they get to build the ministry on teaching the word of God. And that's what grows a church, not just numerically, but spiritually. The great failure today is not enough teaching. Exhortation, teaching that, teaching that exhorts the heart to move forward and do what you're supposed to do. Number five, he said the gift of leadership. Is leadership a gift from God? It is in the church. Matter of fact, I would say in our government we need the gift of leadership in a whole bunch of places. But in the church, it's spiritual leadership. It's a, it's a leadership in the realm of God's call on a, on a man or a woman's life, depending on where they're serving. I could talk about this a long time, but we're going to be out of time. Let me just tell you about leadership real quick. Leadership in the body of Christ is not so much hierarchical as it is influential. In other words, it's not a position where you go, well, I'm the pastor, so do what I say. That don't usually work out real well. 
just going to tell you. Saw a young pastor one time who took over a church, had been there a long time, 100 years. Young fellow went in there. A church had been around 100 years and set in their ways. What do you think? We've been doing it this way for 99 of 100 years, and we ain't changing. You know what he did? He went in and said, I'm the pastor. You're going to change or you can leave. His church went from here to here, and then it closed the doors. Can I say to you that's not leadership, okay? Leadership in the, is predominantly about influence. Influencing people to move in the right direction. That's true in business. That's, tr that's true in any realm. If you're going to lead a group of people to accomplish goals, you want to be able to say to them, hey, come with me while we get this done. And you encourage them using tools. I'll give you a few real quick. Trust is integral to leadership. As a leader, if the people you're leading don't trust you, you're just going to go for a walk by yourself because they ain't following you. Okay? Trust is built on integrity, consistency. You following? And in the church, compassion, the love of Christ, and being an example then people say, hey, that's what the Bible says, and he's following Jesus, so why don't we follow him while we follow Jesus? See, that's what Paul's talking about. If God's given a man that gift, then he ought to use it. He ought to lead in the church. Two more real quick. Giving. You say, is giving a gift? Yep. Someone who has a lot that they can give, where they get it from? God. Whatever degree that we have that we can give, it's from God. So what does the Bible say we're supposed to do with it? Give in proportion as God has given to us. Okay? And the final one is mercy. I like this one. There's always room for mercy. There's always room for grace. In the church, because we are imperfect people, we need to be merciful to one another. We need to be gracious to one another. Not judgmental, not harsh, not looking for every opportunity to drop the hammer on somebody. If someone fails in the church, we don't look for a chance to drag them up in front of the church and embarrass them. What do we look for? We want to restore them. We want to come alongside and love them and pray for them and tell them that we love them and help them. One writer said this, and I'll close. Here's what we have to be careful of. And I quote, he said, there's a way of forgiving which pushes people further into the gutter. And there's a way of forgiving them which lifts them out of the mire. Real forgiveness is always based on love and never on superiority. That's good stuff. Let me close with this. We could do a whole lot more, trust me. We are called of God to serve in the body of Christ. This church and every local church will only be as strong and as successful in doing what God's called us to do if we're all in, all doing the thing God called us to do, all doing the thing God enables us to do. So if you're saved this evening, you got to serve God. Whatever it is, whatever your spiritual gift is, get involved. Don't give the excuses. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm this, I'm that, I'm the other thing. Listen. Read it for yourself. We're supposed to be involved. Be involved somewhere. Help somehow. Do something in the ministry. 
Maybe God gave you the gift of being a prayer warrior to get in your closet every day and pray for everybody you know. Whatever it is God's called you to do, do it for the benefit of the body of Christ. Let's pray. God, we understand what we're supposed to do. God, help us to do it. Help us, God, to surrender self, surrender our own will, surrender all the things in life that would hinder us from using the spiritual gift or gifts that you gave us to use. Help us, God, to be faithful to do it, faithful to serve you to the day you call us home. God, may you receive all the honor and glory for it. If there's somebody here tonight who's never prayed to receive Christ, Lord, I pray right now that they would surrender their heart to you and pray and be saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as Jeff plays. If I, if I can pray with you or help you or answer a question, you come on the first verse. observe the Lord's Supper. Um, if you didn't get one of those little cups over there, uh, they're available sitting on the table there. I think there's one upstairs if you need them. In about five or ten minutes, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give the Awana folks time to hand off the children and come over. So if you need a bathroom break, just come back in. Be sure you're back by ten after, and we're going to observe the Lord's Supper tonight, okay?